Well, good morning. Hey, I want all of you here at Battle Creek, if you would, put your hands together and welcome those in DePage who are watching us in Chicagoland today. We're so glad uh, that you are with us. Go ahead and welcome those at Midtown. Also, we're so proud of what God is doing there, uh, 38th and Lewis. And then downtown, welcome them this morning. And in downtown, uh, we welcome today uh, the entire TU football team at our downtown campus this morning. And uh, we're excited about that. We hope you have a great game uh, this week against Tulane on Thursday night. And if you've not been with us, today what we're doing is we're finishing up our series called Gone Fishing. I want to catch you up. Uh, for those of you who have not been here with us, and here's what we said. When Jesus Christ began his ministry on earth, at the very beginning when he called his first guys to come and his first picks uh, to come and be with him, he, he, he set out at the outset and he told these guys, I am going to do something with you. And he told them this up front. I'm going to make you something. In other words, I'm going to make you something that you are not already. And what he did not say is that I'm going to make you more disciplined or I'm going to make you more mature or I'm going to make you more creative or I'm going to make you more intelligent. That's not what he said. What he said is I'm going to make you fishers of men, to which they had to think at first, what's that? Because that's not what they were signing up for, right? I mean, they, they were coming after Jesus. And if anything, they wanted to follow after a rabbi and, and to be a disciple of a rabbi because they were too old to be picked by a rabbi at this point, and, and they had been overlooked. These were the ones who had been overlooked in the pick and in the draft. And so they were wanting to have a rabbi uh, to follow after, or maybe they wanted some sort of spiritual renewal or, or to become more spiritual in their lives. And yet, when you read this book and you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and into the book of Acts, sure enough, these four guys become just that. They become fishers of men. That is, they went out and they told people, uh, other people, about Jesus. And they went out and invited people to come and follow after their master. And fortunately for you and me, 2,000 years ago, and 2,000 years later to where we are today, they didn't think that Jesus was something to be private about. And they didn't think that a relationship with Christ was something that you kept all to yourselves. And we are fortunate in that regard. And they believed that Jesus was something you talked about. And the reason that they had to talk about it is this, that Christianity is not intuitive, in other words, Christianity is not based on some intellectual concept that when you grow and you mature to the place intellectually, you arrive at it. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is built on a historical person named Jesus, and it's built on a historical event called the crucifixion. And the only way for people to know what happened in history, short of a miracle and revelation from God, is for someone to talk about it. And someone to tell them this is what happened. And before we launch into this today, again, if you're here today on one of our campuses or you're watching online today and you're not a Christian or, or you're not a, a follower of Jesus yet or you don't know or maybe you're trying to figure it all out or you're sitting on the outside looking in, observing the whole thing, here's the thing that we want you to know maybe more than anything else. And here's why we talk about it. First of all, we talk about it because our master told us to. And he told us to talk about it. But secondly, I want you to hear today that what has happened on the inside of us is so extraordinary, we want to talk about it. And, and we're so excited about it. But the reason that sometimes we freeze or, or we make it kind of awkward for you and we stumble all over our words, it's not that we're not excited about it. 
And it's not that we don't believe it. It's that some of us are just coming around to the fact that this is something to talk about and that this is something that is public and this is not something that is private. And if we don't talk about it, there's no other way for us to express how great it is and how great he is to us. And if we don't talk about it, there's no way, other way for you to know about what happened. And we so want you to know about it. And so we're going to jump over in the Old Testament today along this same theme. I want you to go back to 2 Kings uh, chapter 7. And in 2 Kings chapter 7, we're going to go look at this book and we're going to jump into uh, this story. I call this passage of Scripture the Old Testament Great Commission. And today I want to warn you that some of the parts that we're going to read about are a little bit PG because some of it's kind of gross. And the context and the way this plays out is this takes place about 900 B.C. And about 850 B.C., the the whole nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. And in the north, you had Israel. In the south, you have Judah. And most of the kings who ruled during this time period were really, really bad kings. And they had abandoned God's law, and they worshiped idols, and they recruited others to worship idols. And idolatry was kind of the game in the land. And so this story that we're going to read takes place during one of the reigns of one of those Jewish kings who had abandoned God's law. Jehoram is his name. And Jehoram was this really bad king. In fact, he was such a bad king that God told Elisha, the prophet, to tell them, God's going to judge you. You're so bad that God is going to come after you. You're such a wicked king, and he's going to judge you by allowing your enemies to come around you and to conquer you and to conquer your kingdom. And and the king said, well, I don't believe that. That's not going to happen to me, and that's not the way this is going to play out. And, And the prophet said, you just wait and see. And sure enough, the Arameans surrounded the capital city of Samaria, and they started attacking the city, and they wouldn't allow anybody to go in, and they wouldn't allow anybody to go out, and they put a siege wall around the city. Well, if you're in a city and nobody can come in and nobody can go out, eventually you're going to run out of food. And if there's not a well in the city or a well dug under the wall, eventually you're going to run out of water. And it is going to get really, really bad, which is exactly what was happening in Samaria. They began eating everything that moved. And, and this is the way this is playing out. And it's against the law in the Jewish culture, you know, to eat all kinds of things. I mean, there's certain things that you, you just can't eat. And I'm glad I'm not under the law, right, that I, I'm under grace because I love shrimp. But that's one of the things that they just, you know, they don't eat it. And, and so they abandon the law, by the way. And, and so shrimp would have been a delicacy because now it's like, hey, whatever, right? And whatever goes. And they were selling donkey heads at a premium for food. And this is gross, but they were actually selling and eating dove dung. It was one of the more edible things that they could eat in the land because they had been in this siege. And some of them even resorted to cannibalism. You read the scripture and you read these chapters surrounding this chapter. There were places where women would say to another woman, hey, today we'll eat my child and tomorrow we'll eat your child. And this is what's playing out in the scripture. And they're so desperate. And you're worried about eating a Big Mac, right? And and, and they're going after eating kids. And if you don't think the Bible's interesting, you should just read it. It's full of all kind of interesting things. But, but the focus of our story is not within the walls of the city. The focus of our story is right outside the walls of the city where there are four lepers. 
And you can imagine if the people in the city are starving to death and eating donkey heads and dub dung, you can imagine how little food these lepers have right outside the store, outside the city gate. And that's where our story takes place today. And they're kind of weighing their options. These four lepers are having a conversation that we get a bird's eye view into this conversation. And let's pick it up in verse three. And by the way, the first three verses, you can read them at another time, but the first three verses are the prophecy of Elijah, the prophet saying to them, hey, by this time tomorrow, the whole economy is gonna come back. And the price of food is going to drop. And you can buy grain and you can buy real food tomorrow for pennies. That's what he's saying, to which they can't even imagine that. In fact, the king says, that ain't going to happen. And the, the assistant to the king says, even if God opened the windows of heaven, that could not happen, which is a really dangerous thing to say, right? Even if God opened up the windows of heaven, that's not going to play out. And then we pick up the story in verse 3. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. And if they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, we will die, which is great logic, right? When you play this out, they kill us, we will die. And so they had three really, really, really bad options. None of them good, right? The first one is we stay out here, we're going to starve. We go into the city, we will starve, and we might be eaten, right? Number three, we go over to the camp of our enemies. They'll probably kill us, but that's the best option that we have. And so they flip a coin or draw straws or cast lots or whatever they did, right? I mean, like, you know, paper, rock, leprosy kind of a deal. And and they're playing this thing out. And they take their chances, and they go over to the Aramean's camp, and they surrender themselves, because this is the, bat, the best of three really bad options. And so they head out across the land into the desert to the Arameans, and here's what happened. At verse 5, I think, look at verse 5. It says, at dusk, they got up and they went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. And, and so they said to one another, by the way, this is just fascinating scripture. I mean, you read the chapter before and, and uh, Elisha and his assistant are there and, and they wake up and the enemy has surrounded them. And in fact, they're so far around them that they're destined to die. And his assistant, the prophet's assistant says, we're going to die. And Elisha says, God, open his eyes. And God opened his eyes and he saw the angels everywhere surrounding them. And he was able to see what only God could see. And they prayed, God, blind all of our enemies. And God blinded them on the spot. And they led these blind enemies into the Israel camp. And when they opened their eyes, they're right in the middle of the camp, you know, under fire. And open their eyes and all of a sudden they can see. It's just fascinating. But in this story, God sends this sound and he sends this noise and, and, or some sort of sounds of chariots and, and a great army. So they say to one another, this is the Arameans in, in the camp, look, the king of Israel hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and they fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys and they left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. Now here's, here's what happened in this. God was trying to get the king, the king of Israel's attention. And he did not want to destroy the city. He just wanted to shake the king and wake him up. And so when the king was sufficiently shaken, the city was about to implode because everybody was starving to death. God sends this wind or this storm or a noise or something. And 
And the Arameans throughout the king of Israel called, you know, they're afraid because they think that the king of Israel has called for backup and the Egyptians are coming and the Hittites are coming and they're all going to destroy them. And they think we're going to be destroyed. And so the sun is setting on the camp. And as the sun is setting, they panic and they ran off and they left and they left everything behind. And so here come these four lepers into the camp, you know, holding their hands up saying, we surrender, we surrender. And, you know, they're trying to surrender, but they look around and they don't see a single person. Not one person left in the whole camp. But what they do see is over here, goats tethered up. And over here, they see sheep. And over here, they see donkeys and and horses and food. And fires are still burning and coffee is still brewing on the fire. And they're thinking, man, look at all this stuff. And look at all this food. And and we should go back and tell the other guy. Nah, right? You know, they got donkey heads and dove dung. You know, they're okay. And so let's party. And so they start throwing this party, and these guys wreak havoc all night. They, they start eating and drinking and everything. And, and then they go around, and they find all these treasures. Look at verse uh, 8. Look at verse 8. These men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate, they drank, and carried away silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent, took some things from it, and hid them too. So all night long, it's like this, hey, look what I found. We better hide this. And so they go outside the city, and they dig a hole, and they bury it, and then they come back in, and they drink a little more, and they eat a little more, and they find some more things, and they, they, they bury it again. And, and all night long, they are just partying. And it's not in the Scriptures. But I think they formed a band, right? I mean, I think they're playing music, and, and they found instruments called deaf leprosy, Right? And, and, and on the, you know, the album called Hysteria, they, they had a one-hit wonder called Footloose. And, and, and they are just going berserk. And all this stuff they found, and they're so excited. And they find it, and, and then finally, the alcohol is wearing off, and they're bloated, and, and they've buried more treasure than they could ever spend in their entire lifetimes. And it finally occurs to them, wait a minute. Here we are eating and drinking and being merry. And the people, yes, they treated us poorly. And yes, they would not bring us into the city. And no, they did not give us any food. But they are dying. And this is not the right thing to do. And finally, they come to their senses. Look at verse 9. They said to each other, we're not doing right. You ought to underline that and start that in your Bible, because here's what's interesting. Before they said it, you already thought it, didn't you? you? You already thought it. You were thinking at some point, if this story ends with these guys living out in the desert happily ever after, and all the other people starving to death, that's not a good ending, not a good story. And and what they say is, this is the day of good news. Circle that, star that in your Bible, good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. And if we wait until daylight, which means the sun is about to come up, right? They've been there all night. They've been partying all night long. Punishment will overtake us. And they say, let's go at once and report this. And so they had just made the trek out there, and now they're making the trek back to the city full of disaster, to the city full of devastation, to the city full of donkey heads and dust 
dove dung, and they're on their way back, and they're going to the people who left them outside of the city gate to starve. And so they went, and they called out to the city gatekeepers, hey, guys, because the time is early. It's like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and the gates have been closed all night. And they told them, hey, we went over there to the Aramean camp, and there's not a man there. There's not a single person there, not a sound of anyone. There's animals tethered up all over the place, and the tents are left just as they are, and there is food there. In verse 11, the gatekeepers shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. The king, who's asleep, got up in the night, said to his officers, I'll tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we're starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out, and then we'll take them alive, and we'll take the city, and we'll move into the city. In other words, they've set up a trap for us. They're hiding in the hills and in the woods, and when we come out and go in, they're going to come down and attack our city and, and, and come after us. So the king is thinking, this is a plot. Don't listen to those guys. They're tricking us. And in verse 13, one of his officers answered, Have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all of these Israelites who are doomed. So let's send them out to find out what happened. In other words, one of the smart guys there is going, Sir, I don't mean to offend you, but are you suggesting that we just stay here? Because that's not going to be good. We're all going to die. If they go out there and get killed, they're going to be killed just like us if we stay here. And so we ought to check it out. And so why don't we take four or five of these guys and four or five of the horses that we have not eaten and let's send them together and load them up and let's let them go out there and find out if they're telling the truth. And if they're telling the truth, great, right? We're saved. And if they're not, they won't come back. They're going to die just like we're going to die. So the king goes, yeah, I guess you're right. And so he sends them out and lets them go. So in verse 14 it says, so they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn with clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in the headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp. And so Isaiah uh, of flour, which is like six quarts of flour, sold for a shekel. And, and two, which is 13 or 14 quarts, sold for a shekel. And, and as the Lord uh, had said, because Elisha prophesied and said, by this time tomorrow, all the prices are coming down because there's going to be enough food for everyone. I mean, it's a crazy interesting story, is it? And the parallel is so obvious that it almost doesn't even need to be stated. We all get it. And we all know it. We could say amen and, and, and goodbye. But because the children are not done teaching, I, I, I want to go ahead and state it for you today. The value of the story, that when we read this story, it's so obvious to us what they should do, isn't it? It's so obvious. And I today cannot help but wonder if all of heaven and that great host of witnesses and the angels gathered around watching us in heaven, I just can't help but wonder if they are in heaven looking down at us, the children of God, going, it's so obvious what they should do. 
And it is so obvious what they should be about because we're a lot like those lepers, right? I mean, before we came to Christ, you remember how it was before you came to Christ, don't you? There was this hunger in you and, and, and this spiritual desire and, and this spiritual thirst and, and there was something that just wasn't quite right and there was emptiness and purposelessness and it wasn't going away, was it? And, and, and so you thought about all the options you had, just like the lepers, you weighed the options out and none of them sounded good, right? Am I going to go back to church? I mean, that's one option. I could go back to church or, or, or I could talk to that Jesus guy, you know, and, and, all right, at work, or I could read my Bible, but, but eventually what happened is your desperation superseded your embarrassment, your sense of embarrassment, and the desperation factor outpaced your pride, and you decided to give Jesus a shot. And all of a sudden, you had the aha moment, and, and God invited you into relationship, and God invited you home, and suddenly the idea of a Savior became a reality to you, and everything began to change slowly, not, not instantly. Everything slowly began to change for you, and, and, and this was more than just a religious decision, and, and, and your whole life began to take on an entirely different direction. You, you remember that, don't you? So the temptation for you and me is to always bask in the awesome reality of who God is. And just to rest in that and to give very little thought, if any, to the rest of the world. Because after all, I didn't know it could be this good and now I have new friends, and, and there are new things that take up my extra time. And, and, and I go to church, and I, you know, I'm in a, a community group, and I'm serving uh, you know, in an area at the church. But, but listen, if we're not careful, like the four leopards, we will have the tendency, and the tendency will always be, and this will never change, by the way, the tendency will always be for us to allow our time and to allow our lives and to allow our affection to be so absorbed with what God is doing in us and what God is doing through us, what God is doing with us, that we will forget that we have this responsibility to go back. And it's not that we don't care. And it's not that we're not compassionate people. We, we are compassionate people. But we look around at the treasure and the wealth and the richness of being with God. And you just don't go back. And it just doesn't happen. And the longer you're a Christian, the more prone you are to allowing this to happen. I get this and understand it. Listen, I know this firsthand. I am a professional Christian. Listen, this is what I get paid for. And I get up here every Sunday and I teach from the Bible. And people take notes, which is so amazing to me, on four different campuses and people watching online all around the world. And people buy sermons that I write and people buy books that I write. And when it comes to this, I could be the biggest hypocrite on the planet 
when it comes to this principle that I could work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week and never carve any time out of my affection and out of my emotion or even my prayers for people that I'm supposed to be influencing. And what those lepers discovered is this. With their great discovery came a great responsibility. With their great discovery came a great responsibility. And the fact that they knew how it could be and how it should be meant that they were responsible for sharing with those who had not yet discovered it. They were responsible And so you and I, we have this problem on our hands, and you and I have this dilemma on our hands. And here's the question that we have to ask. Will we go back? Will we go back and and tell others? Will we go back and take to others what has been so graciously given to us? Will we? Look at verse 9 again. Then they said to each other, We're not doing right. And this is the day of good news. That's not the first time we've heard that phrase, good news, before, is it? And we're keeping it to ourselves. And here's the question for you and and for me if you're a Christian. What are we going to do with the good news? I know you love it, and I know you believe it, and I know that you feel for other people, but are you keeping it to yourself? What are you hoarding relationally? And what are you hoarding financially? And what would it look like if you just embraced this simple truth, that with this great new discovery comes this great new responsibility. What if you were to embrace that and and, and to go back and to say, I've got to go back and tell somebody, I've got to go back. And and I just want to leave you with some questions. What kind of seed do you need to sow? What kind of seed do you need to sow relationally in the lives of other people? Who do you need to take time to invite to lunch and to share a meal with? Because I'm just exactly like you. Listen, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching you know, to all of us in this room because I'm just exactly like you. When it comes to discretionary time, when it comes to discretionary lunch time, my mind immediately goes to my friends and to my staff who are easy to hang out with just like yours does. But but. What if we began to embrace this thought that with this great, respons- this great discovery comes this great responsibility? What would your next gift be, and who, who would you give it to? All of us love to give gifts, right? But w- what if we began to leverage gifts into the lives of people we're trying to lead to Christ? What if you really began to embrace this concept? And to begin to understand that we have a responsibility to take to others what has been graciously given to us. What would your next gift be? And who would you give it to? And who do you need to invite to church with you? And would you think through your schedule and your calendar and would you be willing to to change some of those things so that you could be in the path of people who need God and in the path of people who need Jesus and in the path of people who need a church? Would you change where you work out? 
Would you change where you shop? Would you change where your kids uh, play ball? Would you get them out of that weird Christian league and, and put them in one with real people who need Jesus Christ? Am I on your front porch? But Alex, come on now. These are my friends. I know. I know. And that's the point. Listen, I know the dilemma. I live with that dilemma. But if we are to seriously embrace this idea that with this great discovery comes great responsibility, how would you do life differently? How would that change your path? Would you begin to pray for people differently? And last week we jumped in and said, we're going to pray bold, bold prayers. Can it get any more bold than what Elisha prayed and said in the first three verses of this chapter? Tomorrow this is going to play out. I mean, it was unbelievably bold. And he, he put a date on it and said, by this time tomorrow, who would you pray for tenaciously? And who would you pray for consistently until change comes about in their lives and until they know Jesus? Jesus Christ. And some of you are here on one of our campuses and you haven't been Christian very long at all. But, but you're seeing what I'm saying play out. You're already seeing your, show, your focus begin to shift. And your focus is beginning to shift and part of you is going, I need my focus to shift, right? I need some new friends and I need some new environments and I need some more healthy scenarios. Absolutely you do. That is unbelievably true in your life. But at some point along the way, there will be a wake-up call. And you will be forced to deal with the same dilemma that those four lepers dealt with in this scripture. And you will say to yourself as the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart, wait a minute. This is not right. This is the day of good news. And I have to share what I have discovered with those who don't know it. What, what kind of seed do you need to sow financially into what God is doing? What, what would you do different financially with this responsibility that, that has been laid on you? If all of a sudden you are willing to embrace this notion that with this great, great, great discovery that you have made personally comes a great, 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 great personal responsibility, how would you view your money differently? Listen, after doing about 40 to 50 funerals, Let me tell you a new thought that, that, that I'm having recently. We don't ever get to the end and celebrate accomplishment. We don't ever get to the end and celebrate accumulation. Does not happen. Let me tell you the only things worth celebrating at the end of somebody's life generosity and selflessness selflessness that's it in other words the value of my life when it comes to the end is measured by did i give it away that's it, guys. I'm just telling you right now, I, I experience it on a regular basis as I stand at the casket and stand at the tomb and stand at the places where people are going uh, to be somewhere else forever and ever and ever. The only two things we celebrate at that moment 
And I've sat in, in my office with families and I've sat in, in homes with families and said, tell me one good thing about your dad. Tell me one good thing about your grandfather. Tell me one good thing about your grandmother. And I, at times I've watched 20 people not have one thing to say. And at other times I've listened and as every single one of them says, he gave his life away. She poured herself into others. They used what they had to impact the next generation. Listen, listen to this verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God in heaven showed his love among us. How did he do that? He sent his one and only son into, and maybe when the scripture is being read, the angels in heaven had to say, not the world. Please don't say he sent his son into the world. Please don't say that's where you're sending Jesus. Not into the world. Don't send him there. And if you are going to send him, wait, wait a couple of centuries, wait till 2014 where the medical facilities have come a long, long, long ways further than when they are in the first century. Do it when the, the death, you know, the way somebody is killed is with injection and not a crucifixion. Don't send him into the point where even penicillin doesn't exist in the world yet. Wait till that moment. And, and you know how God loves you, how much God loves you, and how we know that. It's not because he said it, and he did say it. That's not the only reason we know God loves us. We know God loves us because he sent his son from wherever he was, from whatever he was doing, to the place that needed him the most. And he came back and he didn't forget. And he understood that with this great revelation, with this great, great news comes this great discovery. And with that discovery, even from God's perspective, comes this divine responsibility to the degree that he sent his one and only son into this world that we might live through him. And he goes on and tells us in in verse 10, This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Church, I I just want to say to you, listen, I, I pray and I hope that we continue to grow in our worship. And I hope and I pray that we continue to grow in our discipleship. And I hope and I pray that we continue to grow in preschool and children's ministries. And I I, I pray that we continue to grow in our giving and our stewardship. And we grow in our community and, and in our groups. And I pray, pray, pray that we grow deeper, deeper, deeper. But I hope honestly, and I pray more, listen, more than all of that, that we allow God to make us fishers of men. And that he makes us into what he said he would make us into. That we would yield and we would surrender to the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit to the degree that he could make us into what he said he was going to make us into. And I just want to ask you, would you pray that with me? Would you pray that for yourself and would you pray that for our church that he would make us fishers of men? All of our churches today, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and begin to pray?
And as you pray, I I just want to ask you this. What what are you going to do with the good news? Have you been keeping it to yourself? Have you been enjoying it? Being blessed by it? But not sharing it with others? And today I want you to pray with me. And I want, I want you to think about this. Would you just ask God, who, who do I need to invite to lunch? Maybe even this next week. Who, who is it that I need to reach out to? Who do we need to have over to our home? To prepare dinner for them. Who do I need to walk across the lawn or walk across the office to invite to church with me? What does my next gift need to be? And who do I need to give it to? And how can I use it to share the good news? What changes do I need to make in my life? Do I need to change where I work out? Do I need to change where I go shopping? Do I need to change who I go shopping with or where I get my hair cut? What my kids do and what activities they're involved in? Would you just ask God this question? How can I take what you've given me and share it with others who really need it? How can I do that? He will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. And if you're here today, as I mentioned earlier, and you're not a Christian yet, you're just an observer and you're checking it all out, we've been praying for you. And we've been praying that today could be the day of salvation for you. And so right where you're seated on any of our campuses or or, or watching on the internet. And you want to trust Jesus today as your Lord and Savior. Would you just pray right where you are? And would you just say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. But today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, would you come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, my forgiver? The best way that I know how, I turn my back on all of my sin, and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. And I want to thank you for saving me, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we all say amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for good news?